Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Hey guys, welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and this is episode 39. Um, This is a special podcast episode, and it's going to be a two-parter. So we're going to do part one with Jeremy Morton and myself, and we're going to kind of cover um, what it's like to join the military and and his story and testimony of becoming an airborne ranger and then becoming special forces and then joining Delta Force, which is the elite of the elite um, fighting force for the U S military. And, um, so this first part is going to cover that story up till nine 11 and then up to his first deployment. Um, and then part two will cover deployment life in Delta force life in the military in combat, um, on killing, how to do that, how to do that and square that with Christianity. Um, and then his story and more of his testimony about God coming in, redeeming and rescuing him. Um, so please listen to it. It's an amazing, um, to be honest, really rare thing that you're going to be able to hear. Um, Delta force is something that's very rare to, to read about and talk about. And so it's a very private thing that he's sharing, but it's incredibly rich with hope and encouragement. Um, and just a real inside scoop into what it is that people do and have to do for our country and for their families and what sacrifice really means. So we hope you enjoy it. Um, sit back, relax, and listen up. All right. Welcome, guys. Uh, special edition, episode 39 with the Asking Why podcast with Clint Davis. Um, I'm Clint Davis, your host. And we have with us Jeremy Morton today. And uh, Jeremy's a friend of mine and a veteran. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about right now, obviously, the big news is the war in Afghanistan. Um, last couple of weeks, it's been kicking off and we withdrew and it's been crisis and chaos. And, and now we've had in the last couple of days, um, 13 Marines pass. And so I think the world's just kind of not knowing what to think, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to respond. And I've had a lot of people texting me and just checking in whether old friends or military friends and people that I see and treat and counseling and just people all over the map. And so, um, Jeremy reached out and we just talked about doing a podcast. And so I was excited about that. And yeah, so our goal today is to talk about, yeah, war, Afghanistan rescue, which Jeremy will kind of elaborate on. And so we're going to both kind of give a little bit of our testimonies a little bit as we go and, uh, try to give some perspective and some encouragement and some hope, um, to those out there who have families that are serving, have served, um, and answer some questions about that. So Jeremy, tell us kind of who you are and uh, what makes you an expert on the topic. <laughs> uh, supposed expert. Yeah. yeah. So Clint, thanks for having me on and uh, thank your guests as well for 
you know, tuning in, and yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that we, we will accomplish those goals, uh, definitely be given our testimonies and perspectives and really want to, you know, give some, some hope and encouragement. Um, yeah, like I said, spent about almost 22 years uh, in active duty service in the Army. I would say 20 and a half of those years was in the special operations community. Uh, beginning in about 2003, I started deploying to uh, Iraq and uh, kind of ended my my career in Afghanistan. So I've got some interesting interesting perspective as a as a soldier, you know, yeah. in both locations and kind of more of a broad perspective, global war on terrorism, and so I, you know. So why did you join the good, military? Good question. Um, I would, you know, I'd have to say probably my brother was a, a big influence in that. Uh, so I, you know, I've got an older brother uh, by four years. And what's his name? Lou. Shout out to Lou. Shout out to Lou. I know he's going to be listening to this. So you <laughs> uh, lie about him a little bit. Yeah, yeah. My brother initially had a, a really big influence on that. I would say kind of movies as well. You know, in my teenage years and some of the shaping influences, things that were going on internationally, uh, but primarily my brother. Uh, when I was a, in the eighth grade, he enlisted in the Army, and I remember he left on my mom's birthday, mm. October the 23rd, 1989. And uh, we got to be real good friends with my brother's recruiter, a guy by the name of Phil Turner, who will probably be listening to this as well. Uh, thank you, Phil, for your your good influence on, on my brother's life and my life. And so as my brother was preparing to go um, uh, into basic training, you know, Phil was this high-speed guy. You know, he had uh, gone through uh, Special Forces selection and assessment and, and then uh, was in the 18 Delta course, which is the mm -hmm. medic course for Special Forces. And This, was, think, this was the recruiter? Yeah, the recruiter. Oh, okay. Yeah, and some things, I think, happened, and, and he wasn't able to complete the course. But, yeah, Phil's got long history uh, in the military, still active duty, uh, and so he just kind of keeps on keeping on. Yeah. Um, he was an enlisted guy, and then, you know, he became an officer, and now I think he's uh, going to be in Fort Leavenworth. Okay. I believe. Anyway. Yeah, so, you know, I saw my brother enlist. And so I say that, and I'm and not interrupting you, but for the average listener, you know, they don't know what recruiters are or anything like that. And so, you know, not a lot of recruiters have that kind of experience, you know, and that kind of background. So it makes sense for your story later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of, of connecting points. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Along the way. But, yeah, I watched my, I watched my brother, you know, go into uh, basic training in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Uh, his MOS is a combat engineer, mm -hmm. and so my mom and I, in uh, December of 1989, we drove up to Fort Leonard Wood. I remember it was icy and a lot of snow, and mm -hmm. we made our way up there and saw my brother graduate. And I just remember being just kind of drawn into that environment of, you know, the soldiers marching around, you know, calling cadence, you know, the uniforms, everything. I oh, was yeah. I was sold, you know. And, <laughs> And and I think Phil knew it too. He's like, yeah, well, as soon as as soon as this guy is ready, you know, he's he's on the chopping block. Yeah, and I just watched my brother go through that process. I fell in love with it. You know, I kind of fell in love with military and the movies. You know, platoon, 
uh, stripes probably not a good example but you know it was you know that's what i was exposed to looking for a good adventure with bill yeah. murray you know um and then kind of one of the beginning shaping influences for me was um mogadishu mm. and so i'm a you know freshman sophomore in high school and have this you know this headset am fm radio and i just remember listening to what was going on um I was in youth group at Eastside Baptist Church over in Henderson, Texas, and just really that kind of drew me in. And I just remember for the I think for the first time I've I felt this sense of like indignation mm-hmm. for what was going on over there, and, and just listening to it really I don't know just sparked something inside of me hearing what you know what had happened and that they were dragging the the soldiers through the the streets and just really kind of set off a a fire in me and you know continued through high school and i would say little little what i know a lot of the guys that were involved in that operation would you know i would later kind of meet up with them really um, in in my training yeah some of the guys uh, the personalities there would would end up being um guys that would would go on to train me uh, in the rangers and then uh, later on in the unit so, you know, those really were those shaping influences and, you know, I get through high school and, you know, it's time to enlist, kind of messed around a little bit with that and actually enlisted and then didn't show up for my ship date and really made the recruiter mad. <laughs> <laughs> and then I finally made my mind up uh, and then uh, enlisted and end up getting this Ranger contract. Um, the recruiter you can have good recruiters and bad recruiters um i kind of felt like joseph in a way like you meant it for evil but god <laughs> you know turned it into good and what i mean is uh my brother had coached me he says look man when you go to the recruiting station you know this is what you tell him but first he's like what do you want to do like you know i'm like man i just i want to do the i want to be adventurous i want to jump out of airplanes my brother after two years of being um a combat engineer over in Germany comes back home, goes to airborne school, gets his wings. Um, he's, you know, went to sapper school. So my brother's, you know, high High speed, high speed, you know, he's a, he's a stud, you know, PT guy. And he comes back, uh, goes to airborne school and then, uh, gets stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, supporting the 82nd airborne. And so he, you know, he would come home and kind of tell me these stories and, you know, these long hair guys with mustaches and beards and stuff driving around um, Fort Bragg. And anyway, yeah, so we had this conversation, like, what do you want to do? I'm like, hey, man, I want to jump out of airplanes. Um, you know, I want to I want to do the fun stuff. And he says, okay, i got something for you. You're going to be an airborne ranger. And I had no idea what an airborne ranger was. I just, you know, okay, brother, thank you. And so I go and you know, recruiting station the first time and my brother's like look you tell the guy you want an airborne ranger contract and if he doesn't give it to you you walk okay and i'm like all right so i go in there and i do all my testing and it comes time to sit down with the recruiter and hey jeremy what do you want to do i'm like well i want to be an airborne ranger i want an airborne ranger contract well we don't have one of those but i can you know there's this really cool job you know this administrative job where you can jump out of airplanes and i'm like nope you know just kind of followed, fall, fell right in line with, you know, my brother's guidance and sat there and told the guy, no, I'm not, I'm not taking it. 
and then you know this guy was an e6 mm-hmm. and then he brought in the e7 you know the guy that <laughs> yeah, probably the senior enlisted guy there and you know he tried to sell me on it and i was like sorry man i'm just not gonna take it and um, i left that day and then i think about a month later i went back and the same thing like hey man airborne ranger contract he goes yep got one for you and so signed the paper and you know delayed entry program i um talked to my recruiter and he goes yeah man we we got you squared away jeremy you're gonna be 11 bravo x-ray and i'm like what's an 11 bravo x-ray he says well 11 bravo is your mos and an x-ray is your ranger contract and i'm like oh okay that's that's cool so my brother and my my cousin kevin you know, we come over to Shreveport. I, I was born and raised in Henderson, uh, went to high school there and graduated. And so the closest, you know, processing station, the MEPS over here in Shreveport. Same one I went to. Yeah. Yep. Probably stayed at the same hotel, the old Sundowner Inn oh, right off yeah. of I-20. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I thought it was such a big city because I'm from DeVille, Louisiana. So it's a really small town. And I remember coming to Shreveport to do maps and, and now like my buddy CJ, he recruits and you know, they're still doing the same stuff they always did. And it's just hilarious to look at it and go, oh, that's where I went. I thought this was like this big adventure. Yeah. Well, could you imagine leaving from here and then, you know, doing almost 22 years and then, you know, deciding that Shreveport's where you're going to live at. And I remember coming back into town with Alyssa and the, you know, the kids and everyone. And I just drive past that hotel. I was like, well, where it all began there we go full yeah. circle back in shreveport um yeah so my my brother and my cousin they they take us they take me out that night you know we party it up and you know, we'll come back and next morning go report to maps and you know ship me off to fort benning georgia and show up to fort benning and you know get into uh, uh what do they call that where you wait before you actually go to basic training oh what is that called? Okay. Yeah, that's where they just stand you up and make you do a bunch of, I mean, they literally just basically gas, you know I mean? Like drill you and make you do the light bulbs and the, you know, all the exercises. What is that place called? Uh, not re- Recep? Maybe so. Recep. I just I remember I had to wait there because we were waiting on a cycle to finish, a basic training cycle to finish. We were there for about a week and some change. Yeah, reception. Uh, reception. Recep- yeah, yeah, reception. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I'd left on December the 29th. Of 1994. Anyways, there we are in reception. We finally, you know, make it, get on the buses with all our gear. And, you know, we show up to Bravo Company 258, B258. That was our our company and battalion. And we, you know, they get on the bus, start screaming at us, get off the bus, you know, (laughs) and uh, we're getting off the bus. And you ever forget the first time you see that drill sergeant? Yeah, it's fear. Right. (laughs) Like, whoa, my gosh, what is this? Yep. And so, you know, this country kid from East Texas is now in deep water. You know, here I am. And so they they get us all off the bus, and they separate us by platoons. And once, you know, they, you know, give us a little harassment and push-ups and all that kind of stuff, like, okay, get upstairs. So I was in third platoon, Bravo Company 258. And I remember we dropped all of our bags, and they said, you got to sit down on the bunks in our in our bay. And... Drill sergeant stood up and he says, "Okay, this whole platoon, you're mortarmen." And I like raised my hand. I'm like, uh, "Drill sergeant, I'm in the wrong platoon." You know, shut up. You're a, you're a mortarman. <laughs> and I was uh, betrayed, betrayal. 
Um, guard side, if you're listening, I'm coming for you. That's right. Uh, no, he uh, uh, he knew exactly what had happened. I, I actually came in with an open 11 series. Okay. So I could have been 11 Bravo, 11 Mike, which is a um, mechanized infantryman riding on a Bradley. It could have been a tow gunner, 11 Hotel, uh, 11 Bravo, so I 11 Charlie. And so I ended up, you know, drawing the the eleven Charlie straw, and so there I was, Mortarman, just absolutely defeated, you know. Oh, I bet. It's like I did not sign up to be an eleven Charlie <laughs> Mortarman. I didn't even know what a Mortarman was. Maybe from watching Stripes, you know, where he's out there on the range, he's like, "How do you fire that weapon, son?" Well, sir, I don't have the coordinates. You know, he drops that mortar around and ends up, you know, blowing Sergeant Hulka off the <laughs> off the rope tower that he had climbed. Um, that's not what I wanted to be, but I ended up, you know, staying committed to it and had some really good drill sergeants. And uh, we uh, finished up basic training and then we went into our um, AIT, learning how to, to be a mortarman. Uh, and so I did that and went to airborne school. Do you go right after AIT to airborne school? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so the progression was I did have a Ranger contract. I just wasn't going to be an 11 Bravo. So mm. my destiny was to be an 11 Charlie Mortarman in Ranger Battalion. And so the way the progression worked was basic training, AIT, learn to be a, a Mortarman, airborne school. Then at the time it was called RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program. Mm-hmm. Now it's called the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program, RASP, I think is what the current name is. Sounds nicer. Yeah. Indoctrination. Yeah, RIP, indoctrination. So we, you know, I spent two weeks um, kind of in holdover status waiting to go to RIP. And just there was this guy named Ray Devins who was just a, a monster. I remember, dude was, you know, you know the epitome of a yoked Ranger, up. yoked up, that guy. And he just tore into us. And so I had like a week and a half, two weeks with him. And then finally got in a rip. And, uh, yeah, did a rip. Uh, one, one of the guys I told you, you know, uh, Somalia Mogadishu. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, guys, um, Jeff Strucker. You, I don't know if you've heard of Jeff Strucker. Yeah. Yep. So Jeff was a, a rip cadre at oh, the time. That's cool. And so uh, just some funny moments with him. Um yeah, just giving us a hard time. The guy was just a, he was a monster as well, just a PT stud. It was crazy and basic. The Rangers that came in who would run, like you'd be dying in a formation to run, and they'd just be running the whole circle around the entire platoon backwards while you were just trying to run normal. It was insane. Yeah. What What's funny is, like, in, you know, in high school, I was a bit of a runt, you know, and see when i was a freshman i think i weighed i remember weighing myself in the field house um in the eighth grade like 98 pounds i'm a freshman i'm like 98 pounds wanting to play football and do all that stuff and you know just i'm a late bloomer yeah i mean that's why i look so young now Um, yeah um got those late bloomer genes and so through high school yeah just i wanted to be athletic uh just wasn't in the cards for me i ended up being a band guy you know in in the marching band little did i know that what'd um, you play uh, initially started playing the trumpet and then in middle school they transitioned me over to the baritone so i'd play the baritone during marching season and i'd play the euphonium uh during concert season nice. and so yeah I, you know i could i could play and kind of work my way through high school was in the band and actually got a scholarship to kilgore college and I think the part that I left out is I tried college for about two weeks. 
I uh, went to class once, I think it was English class maybe, and was just too too interested in partying and kind of living that life with my buddies. And yeah, really the thing that pushed me into the military was uh, I woke up and we'd gone over to a buddy that had this house out in the country and we'd been drinking the night before and I like, went to sleep on the couch and somebody was pushing me, right? Like just kind of pushing me what is going on? I wake up and look up and it's my mother and my grandfather standing there. They had tracked me down. <laughs> I ha- have no idea how, uh, but they tracked me down and, and there they were. I like, get up get your stuff and uh, took me home and my mom's like, it's time, time for you, son, to be all you can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so mom, yeah, mother knows best, right? It's She's a, like, it's time to do this thing if you're doing it, buddy. Yeah, you're not wasting my money at uh, Kilgore College and wasting your time. So, yeah, anyway. So, I, I, yeah, I played the band and kind of this late bloomer. And I remember getting ready and, like, we lived out in the country and I had this two-mile loop and I just, I didn't know how to exercise. I had these hiking boots and I would get up in the morning and try to go run two miles and whatnot but i get i get the basic you're trying to prepare for basic i'm trying to prepare for basic yeah. you know i don't know what i'm doing right right so i get to basic training and um yeah the thing things started happening um, i guess i finally hit puberty you know and the testosterone started kicking in and um got really good at running and i saw that kind of being lightweight and helped out and uh, i think you know ma- you know matching your pt test is like a a big deal and I couldn't max it I was like at 297 out of 300 coming out of basic training so I thought I was like yeah man I'm pretty tough that's pretty good though um I was trying to break uh, 12 minutes on my two miles and you know I was getting there so I'd I'd sort of found it's so hard yeah I'd I found something that uh that I was good at mm. and and I was good at being a soldier I was good at all that stuff and even though I didn't want to be in 11 Charlie, I, I still kind of enjoyed learning that and, and uh, excelling in that as well. And yeah, basic training. And then on to RIP and just things were getting better. Yeah. You know, things were getting better. I go to RIP and, and make it in uh, summer of 95. Uh, so what do you do for airborne school? Can you give a general synopsis of that? Yeah, airborne school, you show up and, you know, they assign you your your, your company and your platoon and you basically start um, kind of going through all the classes to, to learn what it is to jump out of an airplane and specifically this type of airborne operation. There's there's two different types. This is a static line operation and really what you do, it's a, it's a low altitude uh, uh, infiltration technique where... Basically, you're wearing this parachute, right? And you have this thing called a static line. It's a basically a line with a hook on the end of it that connects to a cable on the inside of the aircraft. And what you do is you basically hook to that cable and you walk out the back door or off the ramp of the aircraft and, and you fall for a moment. Let's say you just fall out. Yeah, you just fall out of the aircraft. <laughs> and then the static line is connected to um, your parachute. And it's connected to this thing called your D bag, your deployment bag. So inside that deployment bag is the parachute itself. And so there's a whole there's a whole MOS dedicated for these guys called riggers. Yeah. And their job is to pack these parachutes and you really want them to pack that thing well. It'd be nice to the riggers. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very nice to those guys. And so yeah, your parachute is pulled out um, of its container 
and then it opens up and then you know you're kind of really at the mercy of the wind and the parachute uh, back in those days we we jumped uh, round parachutes and you know the ability to steer these things you just don't have a whole lot of maneuverability with a round parachute so it's important that you you know hope hopefully the jump master is getting the spot right where you know the track of the aircraft and the spot where you're supposed to uh, begin the exit and and has done all his homework to make sure that the winds blow you and kind of keep you on the drop zone but you you land and so that altitude can be anywhere from 1500 feet to combat operations more like 800 feet off the ground and so that's what airborne school is you know they just kind of teach you um, kind of like ground week and then they have these little towers that you can do these uh, like mock exits out of where you're connected to you're wearing a harness and you know, you jump out of the side of this mock-up and, you know, you count to 5,000, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, right? And so that's 5,000 counts supposed to simulate, you know, the time it takes from the moment you exit the aircraft until your parachute's open, right? And then you, you kind of go through these drills of looking up and checking your, your risers that lead to the canopy. Check your canopy and make sure it's fully inflated. And then you go into emergency procedures just in case that canopy doesn't open, you know, you, you know get back into the position and pull your ripcord on your reserve parachute which is mounted to your to the front know, of you front of you kind of right there at your belly yeah and then you you ever have to pull that thing no thankfully yeah the <laughs> riggers did a really great job uh, um, yeah in the last week you're supposed to get five jumps um and you know you do uh like they call slick where you're just wearing your parachute and the reserve parachute and you jump out and then they add combat equipment and that combat equipment includes, you know, your weapon, and then you've got uh, a rucksack or your pack, and it's attached to your front. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, jump out of the aircraft, and, you know, everybody celebrates. You get your airborne wings. That's a big ceremony where they kind of pin them to you, your chest. And my brother came in and pinned my airborne wings oh, on awesome. me. Uh, he gave me my blood wings, which basically, you know, all the awards kind of like behind me they have like these little these two little pins that stick through the fabric of the uniform and you have these little you know connecting pieces that that keep them in place and so the tradition is you take those airborne wings and you take the the back end off of them you put them on the chest and then you you know you get a good punch in the chest and it drives those two pins into your flesh and your chest and you kind of get your quote blood wings Mm -hmm. um so my brother had the honor of doing that for me i thank you thank you lou appreciate that (laughs) No, so I... The things that we do, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Come back to haunt me later. Um, yeah. And so that, that's airborne school. Finished up airborne school. My mom's there, you know. My uh, my stepdad is there, my brother. And, you know, Ray Devins comes in. And so the tradition is, is that airborne school is right down the street from, or was at the time, right down the street from uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion and the 75th Ranger Regiment Headquarters. And... You know, the ranger cadre comes down, gets everybody over there, tells them to throw all their equipment on the back of this truck. Everyone gets in formation, and you proceed to run from airborne school all the way down to regiment. Uh, and and that is not a slow pace uh, run uh, with a guy like Ray Devon. So we sprinted down there. All the, You know, I remember laughing because you, you start off with a group of guys that had – you know ranger contract and then you know this big gorilla of a guy 
Ray Devin shows up and he's real scary looking and you know, we're about to run and immediately like two or three guys just quit on the spot. Like <laughs> it's not what I signed up for. Yeah. Not doing this. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. You know, I'm, I'm scared though. but I'm apprehensive. I'm like, I'm, let's do this. You know, so we run down there and, and uh, get in processed and spend our time with the Ray Devons. Now can you, you can do airborne without doing Rangers, right? Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you know, kind of a package deal depending yeah. on what you want to do. Gotcha. Uh, you can, or you, you know, you could just join, you know, and be a, a what we call just a straight infantryman. And later on, if you want to go to airborne school and get assigned to an airborne infantry unit, like the 82nd airborne or the, you know, uh, then, then you can do that mm-hmm. and you can do that. So it just, it kind of like, you know, whatever way you want to go, there's, there's a couple ways to get from point A to point B. I just had the, uh, the benefit of having my, my brother kind of coaching me through that and give me some guidance. So then from, so you do ranger school, mm-hmm. you know, talk about that a little bit. Well, that's later. So you do okay. rip and then, so there's, there's kind of a difference. I mean, you have to, it's a bit nuanced. So when you say, Hey, I'm, you know, what, we, you know, I, I was a ranger when I was in, in the army. There's, there's guys that are actually assigned to a ranger battalion or the 75th ranger regiment. So that's their actual unit is a ranger battalion. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have guys that go through ranger school and they get the ranger tab and they also like, I'm a ranger. And that's true too. They've gone through ranger school. Um, they've graduated, they have the ranger tab. And so it's kind of like, how do you, I'm a ranger. I'm also a ranger. Who um, makes fun of who is the question? Um, I think the full-time rangers tend to make fun of the, <laughs> the schoolhouse rangers. Yeah. Yeah. There's always somebody. Yeah. There's, I'm sorry. If, if you're out there and you've got your ranger tab and you were never in uh, ranger battalion, it, it's okay. No. Uh, I just feel like we just have to like fight amongst each other. Oh yeah. We can make, it's the same thing with like uh airmen here at Barksdale or whatever. It's like, we can make fun of each other in or whatever, but nobody outside can make fun of anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I go to Ranger Battalion. I finish up RIP and get assigned to First Ranger Battalion down in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, go down there, um, get in processed, get get hazed quite a bit, um, and then I get get my assignment. At at that point, one seven five was on block leave, so you take block leave twice a year in the summer and the winter. Uh, they were on summer block leave, and so we had about three days before the battalion came back uh, from block leave sort of a reprieve almost it wasn't as bad uh, when i first showed up but uh, this this one moment just kind of stands out in my mind i you know one kind of one of the the hallmarks of being a ranger is you know you you, you got your beret and back then we had these black berets uh, before shinseki decided to give a black beret to everyone yeah, right Every, everyone gets a trophy. we thought we were so cool when we got a black beret yeah so we uh, we were black berets and we were later going to transition to tan berets like in the in the picture on facebook um and so yeah you know we uh, we get our berets after we graduate. It's kind of one of those things that are, you know, you earned your beret. You Did know. they switch to tan after everybody got the black ones? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> were like, we're not doing this. Yeah. We were told to be quiet. Like, Hey guys, uh, not a word, right. You know, the leadership has decided this. And so it just is what it is. So we all kind of grumbled, you know, within the ranks, but you know, we were good Rangers and didn't really cause too much of a fuss. Yeah, but you kind of get this black beret, you know, and you learn how to shape it and wear it, and that's part of the the RIP graduation ceremony. And um, I thought it was going to be somewhat dramatic, but the the guy who was one of our cadre, he walked in and he pulled the beret out of his pocket, and you know, we had the opportunity the day before to 
take the beret and shave it you know yeah. get all the fuzz off of it so you don't look make like it look nice yeah yeah like uh like a frenchman i guess yeah and and shape it and learn how to wear it properly and he pulls this beret out of his pocket and he goes well it's black it's hot and it takes two hands to put on congratulations (laughs) (laughs) great thanks man yeah so me and my buddy rob phelps uh he's got this jeep and so we make our way uh from fort benning down to savannah i think it's about a four-hour ride you know and we we pull up right outside of hunter army airfield and i just remember feeling so cool right i had this black beret on like yeah man i'm i'm a I'm the man. I'm the man now, baby. They sing about us. Yeah, so we're sitting at the stoplight, and this dude in a blue Camaro pulls right up next to us, and he just had this look on his face, right? And he rolled down the window and looked, and he goes, are you guys going to Hunter Army Airfield? Like, uh, yeah, we are. He goes, I'll see you there. And so he ended up being one of the guys that stayed in Savannah for block leave. He was a spec four, and for those that don't know, there's – what's called the spec four mafia and uh um in ranger regiment spec spec four mafia are the guys that that pretty much just got out of ranger school yeah they've spent the last two or three years being harassed themselves uh they get their ranger tab and that's sort of a rite of passage in the ranger regiment you get your ranger tab like hey you've made it now you kind of come over to the safe side right not yeah. just your beret. Yeah, not just the beret. The beret is just like, yeah, whatever, right? The <laughs> ranger tab really is kind of like you're a made man almost. And so, yeah, <clears throat> Parks was his name, I uh, would later find out. And so he, he waited for us. Uh, uh, we, we we went into human resources and in-processed. That's and, the best story. Oh, yeah, the guy was just like anxious, wait. anxiously pacing outside. And soon as soon as we came outside, he's like, get your stuff and come with me. And... uh he took us up. I think he was a Alpha Company, and he took us upstairs, and just proceeded to what they call smoking smoke us, which is push-ups. You know, a lot of push-ups, flutter kicks, low crawl, and so this guy he just is enjoying himself at at our expense. You know, uh, pain, baby, a lot of pain, <laughs> and so I'm sweating profusely, and then that uh, the HR guy figured out what had happened, and he came up, and he was like hey you guys get your stuff and come with me and you know parks kind of relented at that point and we you know it's like hey battalions on block leave i recommend you guys don't be don't Hiding. be here get out of here right now and so we spent that weekend i think somewhere else at a at a hotel or something and battalion came back in off a of block leave and then just let the games begin it was uh jeremy you're going to charlie company you're going to be in weapons platoon and so just that began my career in, in Ranger Battalion. And wow, what an adventure that was. We could we could sit here for two hours just talking about that alone. But yeah. it was uh it was good. I needed that uh in my life. Um structure, a lot of activity, um a lot of rigorous training and uh it was just the right thing for me and uh started doing really well in that. What was the camaraderie like? You know, um, the camaraderie there was unlike any other, um, even later on being in the unit. Um, we're just like this band of brothers, really. Uh, we all looked out for each other. We all just kind of watch each other's backs. And, you know, there's just something about suffering together yeah. at the hands of the, the Specform Mafia. Um, I do remember, so as, as a mortarman, you know, 
uh, first day everyone's back, uh, they're like, Morton, get down to the platoon CP. And so the way the barracks were, there were three-story barracks, these long hallways, and, you know, we kind of lived down the hallway. And the platoon office is down at the end of the hallway. And so I'm getting tuned up by my, my gunner at the time, my, my mortar gunner. And so now the weapons platoon sergeant wants to see me. Morton, get your, you know what, down here. And so I'm, yes, sergeant. Hot footed down there, uh, knock on the door. He's like, come in. And I go stand at the position of parade rest, which for everyone listening was you kind of got your your feet at shoulder width apart and your hands are behind your back. Um, and you're standing there um, just waiting for instructions or whatever he has to say. And the guy looked at me and he's like, how much do you weigh? Like, uh, like 135 pounds, Sergeant. He's like, you're not going to make it. Get out of here. You know, I'm like, roger that, Sergeant. And I just kind of out of the office and down the hallway, uh, back into the room and probably got tuned up a little bit more. Um, yeah, and that was it. I mean, I, life in battalion was uh, was good. I mean, we were, we were busy. Uh, we were always jumping out of airplanes doing airfield seizures uh we're uh, hunter, army, hunter army airfield is in savannah and it, it, it's really a small uh kind of area so no, no place to train and so we had to truck our way over to fort stewart georgia which is about an hour away and that's where all the training areas were at so i spent many a night um, on fort stewart walking uh, to some of the things that that we did many 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 miles uh, wearing a rucksack because we kind of prided ourselves on being able to get anywhere by foot and but as a as an 11 charlie just you know the equipment was heavy so i was you know i was this 135 pound soaking wet kid carrying 80 90 pounds um, of equipment and you know we would go out and and kind of a typical field exercise when we left hunters you know we might you know, get on airplanes and then jump on one of the drop zones at Fort Stewart, you know, and, and that would take place at night. And, you know, probably eight or nine o'clock you'd land on the drop zone and then uh, the rest of the night you'd be walking, you know, do about 12, 13 miles uh, to the next point. And then we would do our training from there and probably do some more walking. And then at some point, a guy by the name of Stan McChrystal, who sort of became a legend, I guess, later on. He was the uh, JSOC commander, and then he was the uh, the commander that Barack Obama fired. He did that He did that interview at the Rolling Stone magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Stan McChrystal was a regimental commander, and he he was like, you know what? These guys don't walk enough, so I want to implement more, <laughs> more walking. And uh, what that equated to, I think it was once, uh, maybe once a quarter or maybe twice a year, we had to do these 25-mile road marches. Oh, my goodness. Where you, That's you know, brutal. You, yeah, where you pack on the equipment and, uh, and just march. For You're 20, like, we're not sappers. Yeah, 20, <laughs> 25 miles, you know. And I remember looking at the 11 Bravos at the time. I hadn't gone through ranger school yet, and, and those guys were whining and complaining. They, they were their assault packs, you know, and they had a little bit of weight. And I was like, you guys are. I don't want to hear any fussing from you. <laughs> Come over here and carry this pack, you know? And, yeah, we just walk and walk and walk. And and that was kind of like life in, in Ranger Battalion. But it, it was looking back, and it was preparing me for what lie ahead. Yeah. And so I was um, kind of 
one of those things that I say is kind of the hand of God and really like moving me forward in my career and kind of preparing me for things is that, you know, not a whole lot of Levin Charlies in, in Ranger Battalion. We were kind of shorthanded with, you know, a 60 millimeter mortar gun team should have three guys, a gunner, an ammo bearer, and then um, an assistant gunner. And we typically only had two. So it'd be me and the gunner. We'd have to split up our equipment. Anyway, I got really good at PT. Um, they said there's two types of rangers, smart rangers and strong rangers. <laughs> and I was a strong ranger, <laughs> which meant, you know, when they ask you questions, like you had to m- memorize all of the data about the gun. You have to know everything about the mortar system, just backwards and forwards, just everything. And right. So that process of learning and memorization was uh, pretty brutal for me. But I, in the process, I got really strong. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was making my way. Uh, it turned out I could run and got fast. And before I knew it, I was, you know, blowing the the PT test out of the water. And, you know, I'm at one point I'm running two miles in like 11 and a half minutes. Wow. And just smoking, you know. And it got to be where I was the one having a good time watching everybody else suffer. <laughs> you know, I could, I could run. I'm like, man, I'm good at running. I'm good at push-ups. I'm good at sit-ups. Like, I'm just, I'm strong, you know. And... Really what that equated to was just, you know, the professionalism there. I was able to move up pretty quickly. And so I'd been in the battalion probably for a year and a half, maybe, maybe a little less. And and no deployments at this point. Yeah, no deployments. This is all pre. So for everyone listening, kind of two groups of people. You have pre 9-11 and post 9-11 folks. That's the way that's the way we look at each other. Then you have me who was in basic training on 9-11. So yeah. that was an interesting in the between. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we when I got there, there were the guys in battalion, the ones that you kind of worshipped and looked up to were the guys that had been to Panama in 1989. Mm-hmm. So they'd had their combat scrolls. So, you know, you have um, normally you wear your, your unit designation and, you know, airborne or ranger on your left shoulder. And if you have been to combat, you wear your combat patch on your right shoulder and so anytime you'd see one of those guys walking around with a combat scroll on it was like ooh, you know, like you're on hollow ground right and and even more so if you looked at it you know one of the the parachute badges and they had a little yellow star in the middle which means they had a combat jump and so we you know we had some guys that had jumped into panama in 1989 and we had a small number of guys that were first sergeants that were in grenada mm back in the day and those guys were some some interesting characters I bet. yeah so anyway so i yeah i was doing really well man and i mean I'd, I'd been in there um for a short period of time and we were out in the field at fort stewart we had jumped in and we were just you know kind of training and and they were like morton get over here uh roger that sergeant so i'll go running over there he's like hey I want you to pack your rucksack. The truck's going to be here to pick you up in 30 minutes. You're you're going to pre-ranger. So good, just go back to, they're going to take you back to Savannah. They'll give you all your instructions, your packing list and everything that you need. Get packed up and then you're going to go to Fort Benning to go through pre-ranger. And so I started that process and I want to say December of 1995. So yeah, I guess I'd have been in Ranger Battalion about a year and a half. And I was at the time a, a private first class. And so I go through... Uh, pre-ranger i make it and then we all you know finish up and then the following week we go to ranger school so i go to ranger school starting in like march april time frame of uh, 1996 and um, 
I make it um, all the way through. Uh, to my surprise, <laughs> there will be many more of those to my surprises. Um, and I go back to Ranger Battalion, and here I am, you know, this private first class with a Ranger, but you know, you know, uh, sorry, Ranger tab, and just held on wheels, man. I bet. And so at the at the time, <laughs> how big was your chest? <laughs> oh man, three times as big. You know, even though I probably lost a lot of weight in Ranger School, Ranger School is just one of those real challenging where you go without sleep and food for a while. And anyway. Yeah, I get back and man, I'm just high on life, high on life. Here I am, and and at the time the army had this freeze on promotions to E4, so you know the they were over strength and and E4 specialists. And even though I'd been through Ranger School, it's supposed to be an automatic promotion. You know, I was looking forward to being part of this Spec Four Mafia. I got my Ranger tab, and they're like, "Sorry, we can't promote you." And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to stand up the, the PFC Mafia then. And so we did. There were three of us uh, from my platoon that uh, we all went to Ranger School about the same time. And we were these PFCs running around with our Ranger tabs and just being total jerks. Oh, I bet. To everybody. Like, we would have these college spec fours that come in. You know, they've got, you know, a four-year degree. And so the Army's like, hey, we're going to recognize your four-year degree. And you'll enter in the Army as a, a specialist. specialist. Yeah. And I had this guy who came in, and he was a spec four, and I just tormented him. <laughs> I told him. I outranked him, right? Or excuse me, he outranked me. Um, and I was like, you will call me PFC. Do you understand? Roger that, PFC. So I had a spec four. And I would get him down, make him do push-ups. You know, I just enjoy watching him sweat. The same thing that old Park did to us, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you got to pay your dues. Pay your dues. And then um, so right after Ranger School, I um, literally – after graduation, get in my car, um, drive back down to Savannah, go downtown that night, and my platoon sergeant, uh, his name was Sergeant Hennis, sees me downtown. Jeremy, you made it. You know, Roger that, Sergeant. He, you know, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Sergeant. You're going to Sears School here next month. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so if I hadn't been beat down enough, you know, the, the beat down was coming. And so I just finished Ranger School. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I found myself at Fort Bragg going through Sears School, which is survival, uh, evasion, resistance, and escape. And that's basically where they teach you how to be a good POW. And so you go through all the classes, and then they, they put you in the field uh, as a team, and you, and you kind of do your uh, escaping or your evading and then they capture you, and then they go take you out to this place called the RTL, the Resistance Training Laboratory, I think is what they call it. And I think laboratory would be correct. And they just commence to start whooping that you-know-what. And you, you kind of get there, and they treat you like a, 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 a prisoner of war. You get stripped down naked, and they give you these, like, um, scrubs, I guess. Uh and you kind of run around and you get interrogated and they, they hit you, you know, they slap the crap out of you, hit you in the stomach. You're not eating any food. And, uh, yeah, is I it go, true they can break one finger? Is that like a thing? No, just two, two, two fingers. fingers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so no breaking, uh, no, no closed fist punches. Um, uh, definitely like oh, nice of them. Yeah. Very nice of them <laughs> not to, not to break their knuckles on my face. Right. <laughs> no, but I just, I got, I got the beating because here I am, this young kid. Oh yeah. PFC. And they know you have your ranger tab. Right. And, um, 
But I got away with a lot too. But they make up for it. So what they do is like the youngest guy in the class, they call him the war baby. War baby. And they all talk like they're Russians, right? Because at the time, you know, we're still sort of fighting the Russians and everything. And that's what the scenario is. You get you get captured and go through this kind of the communist um, or communism. And, you know, these guys are beating the crap out of you and interrogating you. But somebody would get in trouble, you know, like they would tell them like, hey, you know, go over there and you're stacking the wood, you know, and all these things. And, you know, you're supposed to resist, right? And, you know, some of these other guys would resist and, you know, they would say, war baby, get over here. You know, I'd come running over there. Sir, yes, sir. You know, slap across the face and like, you go stack the wood, you know. And then, you know, I guess my mates felt sorry for me. But they would ask me questions and I would just, play stupid like i don't know like uh, i just what are the frequencies on the radio and i'm like i don't know sir i just carry the radio that's all i know to do is carry the radio and so i could get away with quite a bit so they would use me as leverage as the war baby so when i was like okay this guy didn't want to talk we'll get the war baby over here and punish this guy and so i got my fair share of uh punishment uh, by proxy uh, oh, <laughs> with others and um they, they threatened to put me in a dress and they, what they love to do is they would just take, they would take you and just really do things to you that humiliate would humiliate you. you. And like, I remember the one time I was standing there and this guy was, wasn't doing something that he was told and they war baby, get over here. So I ran over there and they're like, war baby, you want to put on dress? And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, no, I don't want to put on the dress, you know? And so, you know, they had this conversation back and forth and finally the guy ended up doing, you know, what he was supposed to do and I didn't have to put the dress on. Uh, but yeah, yeah, sure school, good times. So how long does that last? Yeah, it's uh three weeks total. You spend about, um, probably four days, four or five days in the, in the camp itself and, uh, kind of go through that, uh, learn how to be interrogated and what to say and how to act and, and whatnot. Does every ranger have to go through sure school? No, okay. no, just kind of, you know, when you're in ranger battalion, Again, depending on your track or what you're doing, you sort of get to choose from the menu of schools. Mm -hmm. Some guys go to scuba school. Some guys get to go to Pathfinder school. Um, you know, Sierra school. It just it just happened that the, I think the slot became available. Our company got it, and it went to our platoon, and I just was the guy. You know, they're like Jeremy, you're going. Yeah, and so I went. Yeah, and so I got back from Sierra school and kind of finished up my time as uh, an eleven Charlie and was just still like not satisfied this is not what i this is not what i envisioned my career being like an 11 an 11 charlie like we would do these airfield seizures which means we would take the whole battalion and jump on an airfield and seize it we would take control over it and so the 11 bravos would go and they would do like room clearing and you know the combat stuff and we would go in these mortar firing positions and we would run our drills you know and uh, and then we would pick up and move to another mortar firing position and run our drills, and then the airplane would land, you know, and then we'd go get on the airplane and we'd all take off. Um, and I was just like, man, and I don't want to be doing that. Yeah, I don't want to be doing this. I want to be doing that. And so my section sergeant, a uh, guy by the name of Jeremiah Inman, he knew it. He knew it. And uh, he talked about this guy that was a mortarman before that had been. Uh, in Charlie Company that was a friend of his and he goes you're gonna he goes I know what's gonna happen here you're gonna be like him and then ultimately what happened with that guy is he tried out for the unit and he made it and um, he left and you know that was that 
So Jeremiah was a... And when you say unit. The unit, I mean Delta. Yeah. Um, and so that really was, you know, the the unit would come and recruit from Ranger Regiment and Special Forces. So I would see guys, you know, kind of prepping. They would you know, put in their, their packet and get accepted, and then they would, you know, start training up for it if they could, and then they would go to selection. If they made it, you know, they'd come back home. They'd start growing their hair out which was kind of sacrilegious in the Ranger Regiment. You always had a nice high and tight, what looked more like a mohawk, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, these guys would come and start growing their hair out, and, you know, and then they would take off and not not hear from them really much anymore. And so that kind of still pushing me in that direction. And eventually I was able to, after I paid my dues in the mortar uh, section, and uh, did some time there. I was able to convince my uh, company commander and my first sergeant to give me a lateral transfer. So since I had been to ranger school, the Army viewed that as, you know, my 11 Bravo AIT. And so I was able to put in what they call 4187 and do a lateral change from being 11 Charlie to being 11 Bravo. And so finally I got my wish. And uh, I was in Charlie Company Weapons Platoon. And then I moved over to Charlie Company 3rd Platoon and became a a fire team leader and did that for a while. And then I was a squad leader. And then after that, I was a weapon squad leader. And then um, I'm, you know, in that process, I got promoted from E5 to E6. And so, you know how it goes. You have to go to each school for, Mm -hmm. I had to go through BNOC at Fort Benning, basic non-commissioned officer school. Um, and, and Fort Benning and so the time had come for me I got promoted and got pinned but I needed to go to BNOC uh, to what go. year is this? oh that would have been I left in the summer of 2000 so spring of 2000 spring of 2000 I'd gone home um, on block leave the winter of 1999 and so the way it worked, you know, those five years I was there, I would, you know, do my thing, work really hard, and then we'd go on block leave, and I would come home, you know, high-five my parents or whatever, and I'd go hang out with my buddies, and that was kind of the, the thing, and then I would drive back. I'd spend as much time as I had to with my parents and spend most of my time kind of partying and having a good time and kind of reaching back out to uh, my friend Michael Vandepfeiffer uh, back in Henderson. And so on that, uh, that December in 1999, I was on my way to, to Henderson. My parents had moved from Henderson. My stepdad worked for international paper. Uh, he was in forestry and left his job there and got another job over in Manny, Louisiana for this hard, uh, hardwood mill. Mm. And so they moved over to Manny and, uh, you know, my mom, love her she, you know she's sending me stuff in the mail when i'm in you know in ranger battalion and i would you know kind of get these devotionals and stuff and it would just go right in the trash you know what i mean i'm like whatever i i don't i don't care to you know don't care about this jesus stuff anymore i'd, I'd grown up in southern baptist church um, really great grandparents um, that were kind of a, a refuge for us for a time um, and yeah, despite my upbringing, you know, and in the church and everything, I was just like, I, I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I, 
at that point in my life, if you had looked up prodigal son in the dictionary, my picture would be <laughs> right there. You know, it's a living hard and fast, um, you know, just living, living life on the edge. And anyway, so I go home that Christmas. My mom's like, hey, uh, will you, you know, will you go to church with us? Will you stop by here in Manny and see us and go to church? And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, I'm better. So. You know, I'm driving from Savannah and end up in Manny. Spend a night with my mom, you know. I think I spent the night there one night. Went to church with them on Sunday. Um, I'm like, whatever. Just kind of going through the motions. And what I didn't know is that I was being set up <laughs> by my mom and my stepsister. And so there was this uh, girl there that went to church. Uh, her name was Alyssa. And her parents, uh, David and Anita, went there. And and so they, my mom and my stepsister kind of Kind of plotted this plan like what we want to do is really introduce you know uh, jeremy to Alyssa, and uh yeah so they did i remember sitting on the left side of the auditorium that day and uh kyle clayton preached and afterwards i was just raring to get out of there and get over to henderson and go link up with my buddies so we could kind of party it up and so going to parking lot back of the church and you know, my stepsister Amy's there, and she goes, hey, I want to introduce you to this girl named Melissa. And I remember looking at Alyssa, and I was like, hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, all right, nice to meet you. Uh, I don't know if this was the exact words, but kind of the, the feel of it was like, yeah, well, why don't you just give me your number, and I'll give you a call sometime. Nice <laughs> to meet you. You know, just arrogant. I got stuff to jerk, do. Man, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. I had this girlfriend over in East Texas, bad situation. I won't even go into details there, but... Um, um, anyway, uh, so met Alyssa, you know, briefly, and then I'm off to Henderson, you know, I go and party it up, have a good time with my buddy, Michael. Um, and then just one block leave is up. I drive back to Savannah and then, uh, kind of 2000 kicks off and then come March time frame, it's time for me to go to Beanock and, and go through that school. So Beanock for infantrymen is in uh, Fort Benning. It's like home of the infantry. So if you're an infantryman, like you're, the universe revolves around Fort Benning. Mm -hmm. I call it Fort Beginning in a number of different ways for me. If you're, if you're like a special forces guy, your world revolves around Fort Bragg because that's home of special forces and uh, United States Army Special Operations Command. And so I just, you know, over my career, I kept finding myself back at Fort Benning, back at Fort Benning. And get to Fort Benning and I just, I don't know, there was something unsettling about life at that point. Um, I couldn't put my finger on it. I'd been very successful. You know, this guy had, you know, gone from, you know, playing the baritone and in, in the band at Henderson High School and became an airborne ranger, jumping out of planes and getting his ranger tab and, you know, doing all these things and highly successful. And here I am, I just, things kind of felt empty. I mean, relationships just weren't working out with all these girls and stuff and I'm just kind of living living the prodigal son life and I think I kind of got to that point where I was like alright this is this is empty something's missing yeah something's missing um, and so by the way I'm a crybaby so I'm, I'll probably I'll probably do that you're fine it's okay um, I'll cry with you probably yeah, halfway through thank you Thank you. I'll need. I'll need this. Uh, so tough, tough guy, tough Delta guy, you know, big crybaby. So uh, I think mostly I'm just thankful. Anyway, 
Um, so I get to Fort Benning's our first day of class and I'm barely able to make it through class. I just cannot keep it together. Like, um, like things have kind of gotten to a fever pitch where I'm like, something's really, really wrong. And And you had anxiety or yeah, I just like anxiety. Like I think so. Just a general feeling of uneasiness. Something's wrong. Like I need to go talk to somebody. I can't put my finger on it. And so, you know, we finish up class about four o'clock in the afternoon and um i'm over at um the main infantry building which is just right down the street from the 75th ranger regiment headquarters you keep keep in mind i was still in first ranger battalion um and so my friend steve was there with me went we went through beanock together we were privates together and weapons platoon he ended up going over to third platoon we ended up being team leaders together we ended up being squad leaders together so here we are and Beanock, you know, Steve That's and I awesome. were just kind of grew up together in Ranger Battalion as privates, and we were just sort of connected at the hip. And um, there was kind of the running joke that uh, we were one of Steve's squad leaders uh, started calling him Mollin because you know Morton and Holland. His last name's Holland, my last name's Morton, and it was just the uh, you know a composite of the two of us. Mollin, get over here. So, anyways, I got Steve there with me, and man, I'm just, I'm like, I'm a wreck. I don't know what the heck's going on. I'm like, Steve, I don't know what's going on, man. I'm, I got tears in my eyes. Like, I need to go talk to somebody. I, I don't know who to talk to though. Like, I sure as heck, ain't, I'm not going to go to some psychologist up at the hospital because I'm probably going to get diagnosed with something, you know. And they're going to, I just had this fear of being, you up. being in a straight jacket, you know, <laughs> and like my career's over, you know. And I'm crying in the corner about my career and. Uh, so I'm like, stand away from those guys. And, and that's, I think where my roots sort of kicked in. Okay. Who can I go talk to? What's a safe place? And so automatically I'm thinking chaplain. Okay. Chaplain, chaplain's a safe place. He's a guy I think I can go talk to. Um, didn't know the guy 75th Ranger regiment. We had our own chaplain down in Savannah, Georgia, a guy by the name of Randy Kirby. Um, so I'm up here and I'm like, all right, the only safe person I need to go talk to is our chaplain. And so Steve and I load up in my truck and drive down, you know, the half mile to uh, regimental headquarters. And I walk into the regimental headquarters front door and the staff duty officer is manning the desk. And, you know, sir, I need to talk to the chaplain. Uh, where's he at? Or is he still here? He goes, yeah, yeah, he's here. He's just go down the hall, make a right and you'll see his office down there. So I'm like, okay, thank you. So I go down the hallway and make my way to his office and kind of knock on the door. And this older gentleman is um, sitting there, looked like he was getting himself ready to leave for the day. It was closer to 1700 or 5 o'clock p.m. for you civilian types. Time to go home. And uh, I'm like, hey, sir, um, I need to talk. Can you, do you have time to talk? And he's like, yeah, sure, come on in, you know, have a seat on ironically like a brown colored sofa just like this <laughs> what's going on clint yeah what's, okay. i talked to him what's going on uh, i'm gonna really get you to cry now oh my goodness and uh so i sit down and and we're just kind of making introductions the guy's name was uh chaplain barry and uh older older guy again uh and hey Hey, Sergeant Morton, how you know? Nice to meet you. I'm like, hey, sir, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm one of your 175 guys up here going through BNOC, and I just need to talk to somebody. And, and, uh, all right, okay, well, well, tell me what's going on. I'm like, yeah, just, I don't know, man, just something, I just feel, just like disturbed. Something's going on. I can't put my finger on it. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, where are you from? I'm like, well, I, I grew up in, uh, in East Texas, and. Uh, 
and then joined the army. He's like, yeah, yeah, where at? Where at in East Texas? I'm like, well, I grew up in this, um, this small town called Henderson. He's like, hmm, 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 okay, okay. He's like, well, tell me a little bit more about, you know, growing up and stuff. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, you know, I grew up, I went to church with my grandparents and stuff. And uh, I said, I'd, my full name's Jeremy Morton, but, you know, everybody back home calls me Gray. Um, so kind of as a side note, my full name is Jeremy Graham Morton. And I guess for whatever reason, my mom, uh, when I was born, decided to call me Gray. So I'd never gone by Jeremy. Um, until I graduated high school and then left and joined the Army. And I went by Morton for a long time. And then, you know, when I got to to the unit, you know, we just kind of go by first names, and it was Jeremy. And so it was kind of uncommon for people to hear me, hey, Jeremy, I don't know this Jeremy guy. Um, anyway, so I, I looked at him like, yeah, my, my full name's Jeremy Morton, but everybody back home calls me Gray. And he just got this look on his face and um hmm he's like well that make your make your dad Dwight your mom Susan (laughs) so he uh I think that moment it was it was very pivotal and so he kind of finishes up and he's like yeah I know your mom I know your dad you know I was there when you were born so I you know, the, the short story is Steve was going through a, a seminary at ETBU um, back in the 70s. And I was born in 76. And Steve ended up doing, um, I think he was like maybe the youth pastor or something like that. So he was doing his internship as he was going through ETBU at uh, Trinity Baptist Church. And that's where my grandparents went to church. I grew up. <laughs> that's unreal. As man. a kid, kind of running those always, man. Just, you know, being a, a little, you know, just a kid running around. And so it was at that point, I think, where, you know, things started becoming real. God was uh, like, I see you. <laughs> Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I, I reached out to Steve couple days ago and I was like Steve there's an opportunity for me to kind of share my testimony and my my story and I just want to get your permission to you know can I use your name and he was like absolutely so I talked to Steve this morning and we were just talking about that and he goes you know he's like the hound of heaven Mm -hmm. I remember us talking about this at the coffee shop he'll find you months ago he'll find you um you can't outrun him and so there I was um in Steve Berry's office um, and he's like, yeah, well, you know, I think it's pretty clear to me, son. You know, you need to quit running from the Lord. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, oh, you know, like. That's not it. Thanks for all those prayers, Mom, you know. And, uh, no, I knew in that moment. It's like, yep, yeah, you've been running. You've been running. So it's time to time to surrender. 
And so I sat there and I just remember sort of this moment of deliberation. It's like, okay, you know, which side am I going to choose here? I, I know the truth. I'd, I'd grown up hearing the truth. I'd rebelled it, you know, rebelled from the truth. Um, and I'm like, all right, well, God made himself perfectly clear to be like that message was was communicated and received loud and clear. So God just orchestrated this event. And so I remember praying. I'm like, Lord, okay. I'd said that prayer like a good Baptist kid a couple of times and then got baptized a few times, you know, and so um like I don't really know how to do this, so I just kinda cried out to the Lord and said, you know, I'd save me. And that was the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that was the beginning at Fort Benning, Fort Beginning. And so um, I prayed, and um, unlike other times, no magical, ooh, you know, the, the, the clouds didn't part and the heavens didn't open up, and I didn't have this warm, fuzzy feeling. As a matter of fact, I remember leaving Steve Barry's office still kind of in a funk. And... Um, you know, continued on with B-Knock, and, but something had changed in me. And for a season, I'd kind of gone, you know, uh, just didn't want to drink anymore and kind of stopped cussing because, you know, I was, I was, if I was proficient in anything, uh, PT, shooting, you know, all those things, I was very proficient with the language. Uh, very good at it. You it's know? still hard to get rid of. Yeah, how many times can you use the F word in one sentence? <laughs> A Probably lot. 10, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So I just like the Lord in that season really I, like came in and, and just kind of cleaned me up. And um, people were like, what's going on here? Like, what is happening? And so, word I think he had gotten sort of gotten back to battalion. I finished up Beanock. In the process of Beanock, I did think about Alyssa and. I called my mom. I was like, hey, can you get her number? I think I would like to give her a call. And so I called her, and we started writing each other letters. It's back when people wrote letters to each other. Yeah. Yeah. There were no text messages. The good old days. And I actually used a pay phone to call Alyssa. Um, anyway, yeah. And I finished out my time, graduated BNOC, and went back to uh, Savannah. And I, I was like, it's time to go. It was time to go. And uh, Lord, again, miraculously, and like I knew, I was like, I want to be closer to my parents. I want to be closer to Alyssa. I just don't want to be part of the Ranger Regiment anymore. And Lord, I think, was like, yeah, you probably need to get away from here. And so we're, and this is the early summer of, of 2000. And uh, we do these things called Idris where you kind of have a kind of a practice run at real combat. So you go through this whole exercise of getting alerted and then you come in and you pack all your bags and then they kind of, you know, they give you the mission and isolation and you plan this thing and then you go jump. And and so, you know, we got Idris. We kind of knew it was coming. You know, they couldn't keep a secret at uh, battalion headquarters and, you know, I think the... The word got out, but anyways, we did. We got called in. And like, okay, guys, Idri, you know, no phone calls. We went through the whole lockdown, and um, 
And they're like, all right, guys, here's the mission. We're flying to Fort Polk, Louisiana <laughs> to do this jump into JRTC. You start dying laughing. Yeah, I'm just like, okay, all right, what's going on here? Um, and then you know, we're to, to jump into Fort Polk, do this mission, uh, go take, you know, Shugart Gordon, and then and then that's that. We get on the airplanes and come come fly back. And anyways, there was an, another guy that sort of played a, a pivotal role. Um, First Sergeant Al Buford, he had been in the unit. Um, he was a C Squadron guy and left the unit and came to be First Sergeant in uh, Charlie Company 175. Again, when you say the unit, you mean Delta. Delta, yeah. I just want the average person to Sorry. know what you mean. Yeah, I'll, I'll use that word quite a bit. And uh, so anyway, like, Al was this real cool guy. And cool as in not just cool, but you know, very professional. Like, taught us a whole bunch about, you know, being marksmen and, and just a number of different things. And I remember when I came back from being not, Al called me into his office. And he's like, hey, man, come in and have a seat. And, hey, First Sergeant. Um, it's like, well, what what happened uh, at Fort Benning? You know, I'm like, well, uh, First Sergeant, I, I got saved and... and <laughs> started following jesus you know he's like okay okay you know jeremy i've I've been all over the world man i've seen different kind of religions and stuff and i think that's great um everything else okay with you and i'm like it is first sergeant he's like okay i just want to check in on you i was like right first sergeant and so i think in between that moment and the time that we got edried and flew out to fort polk and jumped in um i was starting kind of expressing like a desire to leave and try to go to uh, Louisiana, anywhere kind of close to my family and close to Alyssa. Anyways, Lord lined it up. I um, had a hand in, in getting us. We jumped into Fort Polk and we finished the training exercise. And, and Al Buford calls me over, Martin, get over here. So I ran over, yeah, yeah, first sergeant. And he goes, hey, this is Sergeant Major so and so. I can't remember the guy's name, but he's uh, in charge out here at Fort Polk. I told him he wanted to come out here. Okay. Yeah, I was like, when do you want to be here? I was like, well, as soon as possible. And he's like, okay. Um, I'm like, August, September? He's like, yep, sure thing. Go back and call your branch manager and put in your paperwork, and I'll make sure the rest is taken care of. And so fly back to uh, Savannah, Georgia, and uh, put in my paperwork, and I get my orders cut to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And that was the end of my career in, in Ranger Battalion, so... Still, at, at that time, you know, no war. You know, we're just training for war, um, preparing for it, you know, hoping for it, you know, fantasizing about war, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to be the guys with the combat scrolls and stuff. And so, I, you know, I made the decision to, to leave there and uh, go to Fort Polk, and I did. So, so, at th- so at that point, you're kind of choosing, I'm not, you know, you've done all this training, you've mm-hmm. done all this running, you've found something you're good at, and you kind of have this crisis you know of man what what's purpose what's meaning mm-hmm. i need more you meet god meet christ feel this release i guess from the i mean i'm asking you know i would assume you've you you know put all your purpose in being a ranger identifying that right finding this identity in being this kind of superstar superhero mm-hmm. and then once you your identity was put in christ are you saying that that kind of you felt like that released you from well, not some of that. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, 
I guess I didn't think of it in those terms. I just I felt like, hey, it was time for me to leave uh, the Ranger Battalion. My identity was still very much wrapped up in being a Ranger. Yeah. You know, I go to Fort Polk, and here I am in E6, and I've got my Ranger tab and everything. And so where are you coming from? Well, I'm coming from the Ranger Battalion, you know. I go, oh, okay, all right. Which is way more legitimate in Fort Polk than... Yeah, as, a, as opposed to anybody else. Not right. To, not to downplay like someone from the 82nd or whatnot. No, but I, just, I, I think just in kind of, you know, being in the military, you know, as you, lo- as you look out at the different units, there's just, you know, the Ranger Battalion was just professional. Um, yeah. It's oh, I'll say it. Yeah. I mean, hard, <laughs> hard chargers. Yeah. Like, whenever anybody saw anybody with a Ranger tab, I mean, you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are legit. They're high speed. They do, you know, the hard stuff. They go above and beyond. Not yeah. that anybody else doesn't, mm-hmm. but there definitely is a tier. I mean, it's just the reality. Yeah, and so it's just that you kind of tear up from conventional army. You know, you go up, you go up the the rung on the ladder. And so I'm at Fort Polk, and you know, all right, well, you know, I was a ranger in the Ranger Battalion, but now I'm here, and you know, I start my career at, at Fort Polk, and. Uh, and we get assigned to a walking team, and, and typically what happens is the infantry units come in and they go through the phases of conflict there. So it's really where you get to work out infantry like doctrine at the battalion brigade level. So you're working these big moving pieces. These commanders get a space where they can do all their supply trains and you know their combat elements, and they move them around during the different... Um, phases of, of conflict and you really get to work those pieces so our job where there was to kind of be a, a check on the doctrine to make sure that at that level where i was at was a platoon and squad level that the team leaders and the squad leaders were sticking to doctrine right and kind of coaching them through that that whole process and another role we had was just to sort of play a referee between the units that would come to Fort Polk and go through, you know, this, this whole training exercise and the opposing force, they call them the op four, mm-hmm. the 509th. And, you know, there were rules to the battle and, you know, we knew the rules. And so our job was to make sure that, you know, those rules were being, you know, they were adhering to those rules because you're playing with little laser guns and all that stuff. And, uh, just making sure that everything was sort of equitable. And if you had a, uh, an op four guy kind of standing behind a twig you know, and he's being shot at with a, a machine gun, you know, and sort of sheltering himself and covering his sensors up. You know, I'd walk up to him and be like, you're dead. The guy's <laughs> like, but, but my, you know, my, my sensors aren't going off. I'm like, all right, a reality check. You see that guy over there? He's firing a 200, 240 uh, machine gun at you, and you're hiding behind a, you know, a twig. How do you think that's going to go in real life? Yeah, buddy, you're going to be dead. So just lay down and give me your casualty card. So we kind of played that referee. That was always the worst is when Op 4 didn't play by the rules. Yeah, and I, 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 you kind of made it a point just to make those guys pay too. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yep, yep. Always looking out for the boys. Because, they, you know, they, they can't have their meal ticket. What you do is you get these casualty cards, and then you'd stick them in your pocket. You're not supposed to look at the casualty card. You kind of just get the, the hand that you're dealt, if mm-hmm. you will. And then as you're assessed as a casualty out there, you pull out your casualty card. I'm the, I'm the, the OC, so I come pull your card, and I look at it, and I'm like, okay, you're a, you're a walking casualty. And, or you're a, you know, you're a litter patient, or you're, a, you're, you're an expectant. Um, you'll be dead here in you know, 20 minutes or you're, you're a KIA. And so what the op four guys would do is they would get the stack of cards and they would go through them and they would all pull either KIA 
or expectant. Because what happens is, is when they say if they're a walking wounded or like a litter patient, and I pull that card out there in the middle of, you know, the training area, and I'm like, oh, you're a, you're a litter patient. You know, they have to stay out there <laughs> until they expire, which means that, that dude sleeping underneath his poncho and eating, you know, meals ready to eat until he expires. And then they send the truck out to get him, take him back on base, and he kind of gets recirculated back into the battle later. And so what I would do is I would carry you know, like a couple extra cards in my breast pocket and I would, they would be like litter patients or, you know, take you a while to die out there. And <laughs> so there was just this unspoken rule of like, I knew that they had those cards in their pockets and they knew that they did, but they couldn't say anything. And so what I do be like, give me your card. And the guy would give me his card and I would turn my, my back to him. Change it out. And I would change it out. And I'd be like, Hey, it looks like you're a litter patient. And just, uh, love looking, oh, man, look, look on, on that face. face. I'm like, yeah, enjoy that. <laughs> um, only because, you know, they're, they're ready to die and just go back and get, you know, a fresh, fresh shower, a meal and, you know, spend the night and the rest of the guys are out here having to finish out the field problem. So I just got lots of pleasure in making those guys suffer just a little bit That's so that awesome. that ranger battalion mentality i think spilled over into my my time there at fort polk anyway yeah just you know and so you kind of march marching forward there at fort polk and just a number of of things god's hand the guy that was a captain on my walking team had been to delta selection and didn't make it the first time i think he got injured and so you know here i am keep in mind my whole I'm like, I'm thinking about getting out, thinking about going to seminary and maybe coming back in as a chaplain. So that's my mindset. I'm like, hey, I'm finishing my time out here at Fort Polk. I'm going to get out of the Army and go to college. That's what I meant by you being kind of released from um, the combat kind of, you know, vision that you had. Not that you're released from being a ranger, that mentality, but when you're in it, I mean, right, all you're doing is wanting to go to combat. Yep. And then that kind of shifted it sounded like yeah that was hard to walk away from yeah because i'd spent time there you know and it's like all right well i guess i guess lord's leading me to you know to other other pastors at this point and and so you know i was preparing myself for that and you know we're kind of doing our thing at fort polk and um my captain's get trained up he's as a major at this point he's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go to this next selection class and i'm like look i'm kind of fat and out of shape anyways let me train up with you and so i just kind of i'm training with them we're running working out and um the selection date comes around and um he gets a letter in the mail and they're like sorry um we're not gonna have you back a second time and what i would later find out is that he just for officers, there's a real narrow window for those guys to come in into the unit um, because they have to hit it at a specific point in order to hit those leadership positions within the unit so they can, can kind of continue on that career progression. And so he had become too senior at that point, and it was just like, hey, sorry, you're outside of the window. Um, senior rank-wise? Senior rank-wise, yeah. yeah. So he was a senior captain. Uh, I think maybe he had already been promoted to major. Um, yeah, so I kind of trained up with them and still thinking about, you know, that, that was that. And then all of a sudden the world changes, 
I remember being out in the box. We call it being in the box, which is the training area. It's kind of the designated area where once you enter into the box, you know, you're kind of enroll, you know, for the soldiers and everybody out there. So we were, I was out in the box and um, I was running the uh, platoon through some, some lanes. Uh, we were doing checkpoints and things of that nature for uh, Kosovo and Bosnia uh, were going on at that time, the K4 and the S4 uh, task force for each. And so we were running the guys through the, the lanes for that. And uh, so I was out with the with the platoon, and we'd set up checkpoint. And uh, I get a call over the radio. It's like, "Hey, Morton, get your get your guys and get them back here immediately." Okay. So I'm like, "Hey, guys, pack it up. This one's over. We're heading back to the the forward operating base, the FOB." And so we show up, and everybody's in the the mess hall tent. They got the TVs on. I'm like, "Hey, what's going on?" It's like, "Yeah, something's going on." flown airplanes into the the world world trade center and we're sitting here watching it and you know mm. game on <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh another moment of like indignation yeah but I was, I was even madder because I wasn't in range of the tank because I knew <laughs> what was about to happen, right? Uh-huh. I knew what was about to happen. Like all that training, all that stuff. And the guys were about to probably get alerted and then, and then go. And here I am at Fort Polk in the middle of the box. You know, I'm thinking in a training role. I'm like, man, just like, okay, all right. So anyways, you know, that happens. They lock down Fort Polk. Alyssa's working in Alexandria at, uh, I think, Rapids. Now, did y'all get married yet? Yeah, sorry. No, I'm, you're I'm, good. I'm leaving some stuff out. So Alyssa and I get married on uh, December the 30th of 2000. Okay. So leave Ranger Battalion. Uh, before I leave, I, I think it was July the 4th, the weekend of 2000, I drive all the way to, to Louisiana, propose to her, and I turn around and drive all the way back to Savannah. I end up leaving uh, Savannah in August. And then, um, you know, Paul says it's better, better to marry than burn with passion. And I felt like it was appropriate to <laughs> obey scripture. And I think Alyssa and I were like, hey, you know, instead of this nice spring wedding, I maybe should get married in, in December. And we did December the 30th of 2000. And so we're married, right? We've been married for a little while. And then 9-11 happens. And anyways, they locked down Fort Polk and, you know, um, it was such an insane time to be on a military base when that was all going on, too. Yeah, because back then, military bases, for the most part, were wide open. Yeah, you could do whatever you wanted to. You know, that morning, Alyssa left for work, and she came back on, in, in the same road that she would drive into that part of Fort Polk, and there was a Bradley fighting vehicle with its gun pointed down the road. Mm-hmm. So it was like, all right, serious business now. Everything changed, man. It was so crazy. Yeah. Because I was at Fort Leonard Wood. On the BRM, I was learning to use my, I mean, I had just started and learning to use my rifle. And, you know, I remember, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was a command sergeant major and he was on the radio and they were screaming and yelling and yelling at us and packing everything in second week. Um, and 
I just remember thinking, this is a drill. You know, they're screwing with this, like, whatever. And we had to, you know, just hump it all the way back to one of the, you remember, like, the old school classroom where they had the, like, square TVs up on the wall? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, the towers are just burning. And they're like, and we're thinking this is, like, a recording or, like, we don't know what's happening. And uh, and there's, like, you know, 80 of us packed in this room. And they turn the TVs off and say, it's real now. And start yelling and screaming and, you know. And I remember thinking, and now looking back, it's like a lot of them were rangers. A lot of them were, you know, they were they were non-deployable, and so they were super mad because they couldn't go do what it was that they had trained their whole life to do or had, or had previously, you know, done. And uh, and man, they took it out on us pretty good. They, I remember they stood us in this line in a formation after the second tower was hit, and uh, drugged this one guy up because he wanted to quit. He wanted to go home and see his family, and, and I felt so bad for him. But man, they they dogged that dude out so bad, mm. which made none of us want to say a word. <laughs> right. I know everybody was kind of thinking the same yeah. thing. But anyway, mm. it was interesting. Yeah, it was a just that that moment in history. Like things change for everyone. All right, so nine eleven happens, changes the world. Where to go from there? Yeah, so sort of another course correction. I've had this kind of idea in my mind that I'm going to be getting out and, um, you know, going to seminary, doing something like that. And I just feel like, okay, I need like that. That wasn't okay. You know, and at this point, you know, I've got, I know my buddies in one seven five and, you know, started getting alerted and, you know, they would go to Afghanistan and whatnot. And, and I just sort of felt helpless, I'm like, man, you know, here we are. Um, all this knowledge, all this training. Yeah, what what, what, what am I going to do about it? And so I just felt, you know, called to give the unit a shot. And as the Lord would have it, um, this would have been about December time frame, and I've been training up with Brad, and so kind of in some sort of shape. And so at that point... So for for people who are listening, you know, there's a lot of guys, like I was talking to my dad, you know, Delta Delta Force is a thing that, you know, from movies, you know, from the show, and we were joking about this the other day, mm-hmm. uh, talking about SEALs versus Delta. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you want to be Charlie Sheen or do you want to be Chuck Norris? But, you know, Delta was a thing that, you know, you hear about as being this really, really um, amazing special unit, you know, thing. And it's in the movies and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, the average person if you tell them Delta force, they're like, I don't know what that is or what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were in, was it that kind of mystery feeling about Delta? Like, did you know what it was? Had you thought about that? I mean, I know you had, you mentioned several people that you had run into, um, that were Delta or try to be Delta mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of floating in the back of your mind or was that just completely off the radar? No, it was still kind of that mystery. Cause you know, we would have the guys that would go try out, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, and they would come back and grow their hair out and leave, you know, and there was just, everything was really shrouded in this secrecy and, and, and everything. And so kind of sort of had an idea like of what that was. I mean, here were guys talking about, you know, Somalia and, and whatnot. I mean, that was a big deal when I was, you know, in Ranger Battalion because the guys from third Ranger Battalion, you know, had taken part in that. And, was kind of sort of had this like mysterious reverence for those guys. Like, oh, hmm, definitely. You know, what's going on there? You know, and uh, so I, I kind of had an idea, 
right? I didn't know specifics. I didn't know a whole lot. I just knew that it was kind of the the place to be. Um, kind of a, I guess, a sports analogy. It's, you know, if you had a, all the teams that ever played the NFL and every MVP from those teams that played in the NFL on the Super Bowl and you kind of put a team together, you know, it's the those kind of guys, like extremely talented kind of people. And anyway, I just, I was like, all right, let's do this. Um, and um, I remember going home and talking to Alyssa. The, the recruiter was coming to town, and, and the way they recruit is they just sort of travel around to, you know, these posts and advertise in the newspaper, um, special mission unit recruiter in town, and you go to this recruiting brief, and a guy shows you a cool video with some guys doing some awesome stuff, and, you know, hey, if you want to take part in this, uh, be at, you know, such and such location tomorrow morning at zero six with your PT clothes on. And so I knew the guy was coming to town and, you know, went home and I talked to Alyssa and I prayed about it for about 10 minutes and <laughs> little <laughs> what I know, maybe I should have prayed a little bit longer about that, uh, about that decision. Um, we did, we talked about it. I said, look, I, I feel like I need to, I feel like I need to do something here. And, when I was in Ranger Battalion, there was a, another unit that guys would try out for. And if they made it, then they went to Fort Bragg, and they're a special unit, and they do, they do things. I'm like, what do, you, what do you think? You know, we've been married a whopping year at this point, I think. You know, kind of stand by your man. And this is like, hey, you know, I love you. You know, if that's what you want to do, then, then, then do it. And I was like, okay. And uh, so the guy showed up and went to the recruiting brief and uh, the next morning I get up and uh, go and do my PT test do my run my push-ups my sit-ups my pull-ups and he's like all right um, meet me at you know nine o'clock at this hotel and so I go meet this dude at this hotel and he's got a room and I start taking tests so taking IQ tests taking psychological tests and I think I ended up taking three or four different tests and He's like, okay, thank you, and um, you'll be hearing from us. Okay, and that was that, you know, and so I think, uh, you know, December rolled by, January kind of started up, and then sometime mid-January, I get a letter in the mail, and it says, congratulations, you've been accepted to go to the Advanced Land Navigation course, and so, okay, and... <clears throat> I was still pretty young at the time, 25, maybe 26, something like that. And I remember talking to my superiors there at, at Port Polk, and they're like, yeah, kind of whatever. It's like a moonshot type situation. And I'm like, well, whatever. I don't really care what you think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the, the guy who was the first sergeant, um, my first sergeant, he, he really gave me a hard time about it. And I remember thinking, like, okay, all right, man, whatever. At least I'm trying, you know. Like, gave you a hard time in what way? Uh, he would just make fun of me, like, oh, you're going to go do that, you know. And he would, you know, like he's shooting a gun, you know, you know. And I'm just like, like, grow up, man. Yeah. He and I clashed a lot because he was a guy from the 82nd. And 
um, he just gave me a hard time, and I called him out on some standards a couple times, and he didn't like that. He didn't like that. My captain uh, called me out. He's like, hey, I know that you don't get along well with him, and I expect you to respect his rank. I said, yes, sir. You know, okay. And that was the only conversation we ever had, and I was like, okay, I just I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And it was a bit of a rebel, kind of still pushing back, you yeah. know. Um, and, uh, you know, 2002, spring rolls around, go up to selection about a month and kind of go through that, just a bunch of walking in the woods with the pack on and, you know, unknown distance, unknown time. And I kind of liked it because, you know, it was like all that, time in ranger battalion with that heavy rucksack on like that was nothing mm. like, dude okay okay you're gonna start off with 40 pounds or whatever i'm like whatever you know and um not not arrogant in a real arrogant way but just confident no like, yeah, i knew yeah. i knew it had been well i mean it's the training right i mean you've been carrying around 95 pounds as a 135 pound soaking wet yeah know, and now you've gained muscle gained strength been through all the training done the things and you know now you're getting to jump in on where some people are like oh this is tough this is the first time i had to do this yeah so, not so much for you yeah so I'd, you know i've been well prepared i've been well prepared and get up there and you know just you know walking the mountains walking the woods and you, you know go from one point to the next and they tell you where to go to next and just that's sort of selection like unknown distance, unknown time. And you just, you kind of go from day to day and, and you don't have a lot of interaction with the, the cadre. It's, it's a different kind of school where, you know, typical military schools, you know, you've got like, oh, you can, you know, encouragement and you can do this. And, you know, they really come in alongside and help you out, like mentor you. This is different. There's no mentoring. There's no encouragement. There's, this is the standard. These are your instructions. Follow the instructions. Like, go. And I found you're that you're a grown up. Yeah, you're a grown up. Yeah, be a man, right? Um, get out there and give it your best shot. And I really like that. I was like, okay, finally, you know, it's uh, I can get out of here and just go. And I get out there and go, man. And, you know, finish the day and everything worked out good and you're just kind of progressing through and you kind of finish up the selection course with a very long walk called uh, the long walk and it's uh, 40 miles. And so you've kind of had this accumulation of mileage uh, where you start off like the second day you're there, you end up doing like an 18 mile road march is just part of the introduction. Like, hey, welcome to the land navigation course. And 18 mile road march and PT tests and all that stuff and start going through all the classes to learn how to do land navigation. And anyway, I just, I kind of, I liked it. It was definitely challenging. Um, but you know, find myself on the 40 miler and finish up the 40 miler and you know, they're like, you know, at that point they call you by your name. Hey, you know, Sergeant Morton, Hey, congratulations. You finished the, uh, you know, the 40 miler. And so at that point, when you kind of get through the physical portion of it, you go and when you uh, kind of do a sit down interview with the psychologist, and I guess he's just checking you out to make sure you're not crazy. <laughs> you're not a psychopath yet. Um, 
Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, you talk to that guy, you know, not a, not a brown couch, uh, not Freudian style. Yeah. Uh, I remember that guy. He was actually a, a pretty nice fellow. And then after you kind of finish up with your psych interview, you have to go in and sit in front of this board. And the board is uh, kind of the commanders and the sergeants majors of the unit sitting there. Not intimidating at all. <laughs> Wait till I tell you what I did. Um, so for for your listeners, the way it works for a typical board, and what they mean by board is you go in and sort of this like military interview process. And there's a, a way that you do it. And you usually have a board of individuals sitting at a long table, and then there's a chair about five feet in front of that table. And so you go and you knock on the door and they tell you, enter. And you go stand in front of the chair, you salute him, sir, Sergeant Morton reports to the president of the board. You know, he salutes you back and have a seat. And you, you sit in a certain fashion. You sit down, back straight, feet firmly planted on the ground, hands uh, anchored down on your thighs, right? That is the position for most of the boards. Kind of get yourself anchored in and ready for whatever they have to ask you. And so I, you know, start that. I go knock on the door. Doom, doom, doom. Yeah, come on in. And so I walk in, and there they are behind this big, like, long oak table, you know, leather chairs. And I'm like, oh, man, what is this? And uh, have a seat. Have a seat, Jeremy. Okay. Make, make yourself comfortable. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> I remember sitting down in the chair thinking, like, do I just, like, assume the normal board like position, like straight. No, what I do is I kick back and cross my leg over like I'm real comfortable. Um, <laughs> and one of the guys at the end of the table is like, hey, smart ass. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, time to assume the position, right? And so I, bam, uh, you're pretty arrogant, aren't you? Okay, yeah, yeah. And so just I went into like an hour-long just session of, you know, hey, tell us about this. Tell us about that. Um, hey, what's your definition of smoking, Jeremy? And I'm like, um, you know, time to pull out the, the cane and the hat, right? And kind of give the, you know, tap dance around answer. And um, and what I mean by smoking is when I was in a ranger regiment, you know, you'd take the privates and you'd, you know, kind of run them through the ringer, do push-ups, you know, flutter kicks and make them sweat and kind of, you know, make them earn their earn their stripes and um so i think they were kind of at that point testing me like hey was that the right thing to do like that that hazing you know that hazing and i'm like uh well not not really and so anyways like hey what is your definition of of smoking someone sergeant morton and i'm like oh well you know you know you just you know you make them do some push-ups and and one of the sergeant majors he kind of chimes in from the back Hey Jeremy, cut the bullshit out and give him a straight answer. I'm like, okay. Well, yeah, you know, you smoke them, make them sweat. You know, a lot of push-ups, physical activity, and like, yeah, yeah, you think that's the way you'd like to be treated? And I'm like, no, sorry, major. And so they kind of made it a point to kind of get those kinds of things across to me. And so I kind of gone down the table and and uh, the general feeling that I got at that point was you know they were like you know Jeremy you, you 
you haven't been married that long. Do you really know what you're getting into? And I'm like, yes, sir. Like, you sure are pretty young, man. You seem immature. Um, okay. And so they're kind of going with that. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, well, at least I made it through the physical part. Yeah. You know, I can at least, you know, go back home and tell everybody, like, yeah, I'm, I made it through the physical part. I guess I just wasn't the kind of guy they were looking for. And uh, they're like, okay, you know, get up and, you know, this guy over here will take you out to the truck. We need to talk about some things and uh, we'll have you back in. Yes, sir. And proceeded in military fashion out of my chair and out that door and went and sat in the, the truck for a little while. And then the guy that had escorted me out brought me back in. And uh, uh, this time I appropriately entered the room and sat in the in the chair <laughs> the right way. And uh, the commander sitting there up front um, was like, well, Jeremy, we, we've uh, we've all talked about things, and, and uh, we just want to congratulate you and tell you, welcome aboard. And he stood up, and he you know shook my hand, and I shook everybody else's hand. And, and at that point, that was a pretty good feeling. I was like, yeah, you know, um, okay, I made it. I made it through this part. <laughs> and, you know, kind of had some administrative things to go through after that and uh, they're like all right well we'll fly you out tomorrow send you back home and we'll see you at fort bragg in a month and i get to my hotel room you know after i leave there they fly me to pittsburgh pennsylvania and then i catch my flights back down to fort polk and i called us as i can made it she's like you did i'm like yeah we're moving to fort bragg <laughs> and she's like okay uh, you know, in Alyssa's mind, Fort Bragg was Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Like Alyssa's, she's thinking mountains, beautiful streams, like beautiful scenery. Um, anyway, um, and uh, I called my captain, and I'm like, hey, man, I made it. And he goes, you made it? And I was like, I made it. He's like, all right. So I get back and um, start out processing. And I'm like, hey, guys, I'm out of here, man. Um out processing means you kind of turn all your gear in there at that at that facility at that post and you kind of take all the things that are issued to you that you can keep that's your personal gear uh, you pack your house up you know you you know out process housing and all those things and then they transfer all your records to where you're going to next and yeah i did all that and and then uh, mid-may listen i loaded up the the u-haul we didn't have a whole lot back then we lived on uh, post housing there at Fort Polk. And for the first time, Alyssa, you know, she said goodbye to mom and dad. She's got a really close knit family. They all kind of grew up there together uh, in Maddie. And anyway, she said goodbye to, to mom and dad. And of course, that was something I was a bit used to. So not much of a shocker to me. And we headed off into a mystery. And <laughs> we, uh, we pull into Fort Bragg and she's like, where did you take me to? And it's really just kind of a remove, you know, the terrain of East Texas, Northwest Louisiana and like transplanted over in North Carolina, Fort Bragg, pine trees, sandy soil, you know, hot summers, humid, just almost identical in, in many, many different ways. And I was like, yeah, what were you expecting? You know, I think she was expecting that kind of picturesque. Yeah. But here we are in 
in North Carolina, mosquitoes, pine trees, and, you know, sandy soil. And that kind of began my, my time there at the unit. And you got in processed and immediately start the, uh, the course. Um, and course basically is just kind of another, um, opportunity for them to one to train you on the skills that are needed to to be an operator there and then just kind of weed people out as well so can you talk about the difference between kind of delta force seals um, green berets yeah and a lot of people think you know special forces and it's that's kind of like a like a umbrella term but really the way it works is i'm going to work from the top down you've got u.s socom united states Special Operation Command, right? And those guys are responsible for all the subordinate services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, so U.S. SOCOM, Special Operations Command. Um, and then each service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, has its own Special Operations Command within that service. So for the Army, it's the Army Special Operations Command, Air Force, Air Force Special Operations Command. For the Navy, it's a Naval Special Warfare Group, NS, you know, WG. Uh, for the Marines, um, I think they've kind of gone through a couple of different iterations. I'm not sure what they're calling themselves now, but um, I don't, I don't want to get this wrong and insult anyone, so I won't attempt that. Okay. And so within the Army, you know, you've got several different units out there. You've got in the Army Special Operations Command, you have the Rangers. You know, and the Rangers are kind of a you know, think of those guys as a specialized infantry unit. Um, their task organization is like a standard infantry uh, unit where you have companies and line, uh, excuse me, squads and, and, you know, teams within a squad. Teams like the central, kind of the building block of, a, of an infantry unit. Um, you know, and they have their own specialized tasks that they've grown into quite well over the years. I remember in like Somalia, their role is more of a blocking position for the the unit guys to go in and, and do the HVT missions. But they've kind of grown into, you know, more of a mature organization because of the war. They've done quite a, quite a good job, proud of what that organization has done. And so then think of them as kind of more of a reactionary force anywhere in the world. Right, so hey, wherever we need like this size element with this kind of firepower and this capability, you bring in the Ranger Regiment, and they really kind of bring the muscle to the fight. Uh, they're the guys you want to come in and be laying down fire for you, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you have Special Forces, which is also another Special Operations unit, but their mission is a bit different. So they're they're oriented to different regions globally. And so you have special forces groups. So when you hear a guy, you know, say, like I was in special forces, the next question is, well, what group were you in? And, you know, and, and so you have fifth special forces group, which is aligned, you know, um, typically with the Middle East and CENTCOM, Central Command. Um, then you have like third special forces group, which typically is historically kind of aligned themselves with Africa or AFRICOM, Africa Command. And then you have let's see, 10th Special Forces Group, which is more kind of European Command, and then 1st Special Forces Group, which covers down more kind of like uh, Asian Pacific mm -hmm. region, and so on and so forth. And the way a Special Forces team is, 
kind of the way they're made up is you have each guy on the team has a specialty and then they all speak a foreign language for that specific region and so on a special forces team you have like a team sergeant you have the, the team leader who's the officer you have a a communication sergeant who's in charge of all the communications you have a medical sergeant who's in charge of all the, the medical stuff you have a uh, a weapons expert uh, uh 18 bravo who's in charge of kind of the expert in weapons and you have the engineer who's in charge of you know the expert on explosives and so on and so forth so each of these guys have a specialty and then ultimately what they do is they focus more on what they call FID, Foreign Internal Defense, and so they'll align themselves with a foreign force in that region, and they'll teach a foreign force, you know, basic fighting skills. Mm -hmm. They'll teach them everything they need to know to, to be an effective force to do foreign internal defense for their, for their own country. Um, and obviously language is a part of that. So they have to know the language of the country they're going into. So as they're teaching classes on medicine or weapons or whatever that is, they're able to communicate to those soldiers. And that's your typical kind of special forces mission set. They do other things too. They have direct action kind of uh, teams within that kind of an A team, if you will. Not not like Mr. T, A team. <laughs> um, um, anyway, so that's more of a specific sort of mission set. And so within the special operations, you have these different units that fill these different roles uh, and kind of in the way that we've aligned ourselves as a military over the years and kind of like we have each one has its own doctrine it really adheres to and, you know, so on and so forth. Well, the unit kind of sits on top of all of that and it has its own, you know, specialty has its own mission set and um, and really kind of draws from you know the rangers and, and the special forces so you'll see a lot of guys kind of being recruited out of the rangers and special forces to go to delta yeah yeah just because you know they've got the the field craft they've already got kind of been hardened they've been through a selection process and so on and so forth and you know those guys typically are the ones that sort of fall into that uh, you do have outliers from time to time, guys that are curious and they're like, oh, I wonder what that is, you know, and they, they show up to the selection course and you, you got a guy from the Army band who's like, the dude just does not know what he just jumped into, right? <laughs> uh, but I was rooting for him, right? Yeah. And, the, and the guy made it actually um, a long ways in selection and finally just didn't make it. But... Yeah, and so that that's kind of the difference. It's really kind of a tiered, you know, way of looking at things. Um, I would say that no one has, like, one is subordinate to the other. Just that at the top, you just have your own kind of set of missions and authorities and things of that nature that, that make that place unique. I mean, it, it's unique in that way. It's also unique. And, you know, the guys that are there have already, like I said, I've already been through, you know, weeding out process to get into the rangers or you know special forces has its own special forces selection and assessment course that you go through and then after you make that then you go through your kind of mos training so all the 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 18 bravos are the weapons experts they go through their specialty training and the deltas which are the medics go through their specialty training right and then after they're finished with that they do they go get their language and then they assign them to their group and they go on to be in their battalion so on and so forth right so they do all of that and then the delta recruiter comes around and picks well i mean it's just like hey 
it's an offer. You're right. And then they have to go in and do what you just described doing. Right. So yeah. they go through the, everybody goes through that same process. And, um, so you see just, you know, a lot of guys. And so it's just another, it's just another step up, right? Gotcha. It's another challenge. It's another kind of calling of the herd, if you will. But it's as high as you can go. Yeah. 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 That's it. There's nowhere to go. Nowhere else, nowhere else to go, <laughs> but down. <laughs> right. And, uh, Yeah. And that, that's kind of the difference. You know, in each service, the Navy kind of has its, you know, its tier one and its, you know, subordinate SIL units, you know, SIL teams kind of make up Naval Special Warfare Group, and it has its own, you know, kind of top-tier organization there. And, uh, yeah, and that's kind of how you break it down. So you just think of kind of like this big umbrella of United States Special Operations Command, and then under that you have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Right, they have their own command, and then under that you have the subordinate units for each service. And so I served at the pleasure of the United States Army Special Operations Command, USASOC. And yeah, and that was that. Uh, so, any other questions about? <laughs> yeah, lots. But I know I could go all day with this. Yeah, clear, so clear as mud. Yeah, yeah, no. So share a little bit about like you know coming to Delta, what, what was it like being in that unit? I mean, what, I guess, tell me about your first deployment. How do you, I don't know what you want to share. What's the, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I make it through the course and get assigned to a team and unlike Ranger battalion, you know, at the time, you know, I'm treated, I'm treated pretty well, but I'm still, it's like, Hey, you're the new guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. We've given you enough training to, to do the job but hey junior you've got a lot to learn and still pretty young still a little wet behind the ears at that point so you're 25 is that what uh, you said i think 26 or 27 Golly, at point. that's crazy yeah and i guess almost at 40 now i'm like you know i forget when you're young you think that all the guys in that stuff are super old yeah you know but you realize that you know just like everything else yeah i yep absolutely and the moment that I crossed the hallway, as they call it, and, and kind of got on a team, like there's a, like things are different. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of when I was in Ranger Battalion, I was a superstar, right? I could out PT just about anybody. I was really good at that, um, really good at my job. And I get to a place where I'm feeling like marginal. <laughs> you know, I'm looking around and like, there are some animals here. Like these guys are okay all right i guess i better kick it up a notch or two you know and so um just phenomenal i collectively probably some of the best shooters in the world um physically just at the top of their game you know and so you're kind of hustling to keep up with the with the pack at that point and and here i was you know I was a ranger. We talked about war. We talked about, you know, all the things that we wanted to do in war. And 9-11 happens, and here I am. I kind of, one of the things that the, the commander, I can't remember if I already said this, but one of the things he said, he said to me as he looked across the table, he said, so you want a piece of the action? And I was like, yes, sir, I do. He's like, okay, you're going to get it. I was like, Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so here I am in like reality, right? No more, 
you know drills no more call of duty right mm -hmm. no more call of duty and i'm now in a place of like it's not if but when right at that point we had been at war afghanistan um iraq was kicking off and yeah man it was just a very surreal moment so like, this is oh two or three? Oh three. okay yeah yeah and I just kind of get this sense of like of course accomplishment like yeah i made it but also like things are about to get real mm -hmm. you know and so we <laughs> we're uh we do our training uh, that summer, and, and things kind of go in a, in a cycle around that place. You kind of go, you're on a, you're on alert cycle, then you're deployed, and then you train, and it kind of goes, kind of in that cycle, over and over again. And so, you, in the beginning, it was you know deployed three months, home on alert for three months, and then a training cycle for three months, deployed three months, on alert three months, training for three months. And so here we are, Alyssa and I had kind of found ourselves a home in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. I decided not to live on post, probably want to live off post. And we bought this house in this up-and-coming neighborhood. And, you know, here we are, summer of 2003, and, you know, things are starting to kick off quite a bit over in Iraq. And um, I'm on alert. We kind of finished our training cycle, and now we're on our, our three-month block of being alert and so for everybody to kind of get an understanding of what alert is, is like I can't go, I can't leave like Fayetteville. I can't travel outside of Fayetteville. I have to be within one hour like distance of work. So if they call you in, like, hey, you have to be at work within one hour. That's the standard. And then after that, I can't share the time that you're actually leaving, but it's pretty quick. Um and that could be anywhere in the world. So whereas like special forces has a specific region, you know, we're, we're more of a global kind of response force wherever we're needed kind of thing. So there wasn't a language requirement, thankfully, at that point. I could barely speak English, <laughs> uh, much less, you know, redneck, redneck English at that. And, uh, yeah, so here we are. Alyssa and I are um, sitting at the house one night. I'm, we're on alert, and I'm scheduled to go overseas on my first deployment in October of '03. So October to January of '03 is kind of the way our our normal window set for that. And we're at the house, just kind of hanging out, and my pager goes off. I look down at my pager, and I'm like, "Okay, all right, here we go." So, run around the house. I'm kind of throwing my stuff in a bag, and I look at Alyssa. I'm like. All right. Love you. I got to go. Okay. That was the end of part one. Thanks for listening. Um, I know that was a lot and heavy, um, but you got good stuff coming. And so um, part two is coming up and you can listen to that wherever you listen to this. Um, you can get YouTube or iTunes or whatever you're listening to the podcast on. And it'll go through um, Jeremy's time in Delta Force and at the end, we'll talk about Afghanistan and current affairs for a little bit and give you guys a little insight into our opinions and our our uh, perspective on what to do and how to address that as the church, how to address that as individuals. Um, so listen for that. Thanks for listening.